asked, I was offered uh, online, you know, to, to give it a try. So I told it to write a sermon about finance and money. And so it's going to be interesting this morning, because I've never read this myself, so I don't know what it's going to come out like. That's a fib, actually. I did write it myself. We've been in this series for a few months now, Hill Climbing for Beginners. Uh, the hills are alive, and um, if I could move on, um, I would, but it's stuck. <laughs> but um, some of the subjects we've been looking at under this series are, are what are disciples, and that was Dave bringing that, and then we moved on to making disciples, and it was Dave bringing that, and then we moved on to addictions and relapses, and it was Dave bringing that. And then we moved on to lukewarm Christianity, and Malcolm, Malcolm is not there now, Malcolm has gone. Malcolm brought that, and then last week it was down in the valley with Barry, which is quite poetic when you think about it, isn't it? Thank you, that's working now. Let's see if it works. Ah, here we go. And this is my subject, finance and job security. Thank you, elders, for giving this one to me. Finance and job security, not, not terribly spiritual, is it? Do you think so? Not terribly spiritual. Or is it? Does anybody know how many parables Jesus gave us or to, um, preached? Anybody got any idea? Rough guess? It depends which Google you go to. But it was 39, according to one Google. 39. Jesus used these parables as little stories to illustrate um, scriptural and deep meanings of life and so on. Out of those 39 parables, no less than 13 featured money. So Jesus was not afraid to talk about money and finance. And why is that? Well, I think Jesus knew that it's, it's what, the, what we know, the old saying, money makes the world go round. Does anybody know their Dickens? You'll know there's a character, was it Mr. McCorber, wasn't it? Who said, if I earn a pound a, month, you know, a week and I spend 95p, I've got bliss. Because I can save five pence a week, or whatever it is. But if I earn a pound and my living costs are a pound and five pence, I have misery. There's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? The parables that mention money include, and I'll rattle through them because it's, it's not possible to preach on every one of them, of course, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl of great price, the unforgiving servant, the laborers in the vineyard, ten talents of gold or, or gold coins, the rich fool, the lost coin, the rich man and Lazarus, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the two debtors, counting the cost, the prodigal son, and the shrewd manager, or the unjust steward. I'm not sure if I listed them. There we go. There they are. I'll leave them. You can note down all them verses, because I know you're all gagging to study this in depth at home. The point is that Jesus himself recognized that money plays a hugely significant part in every person's life. It's how we relate to money and how we use it that can affect our personality, it can affect our mood and our relationship with those around us. If my phone went off and I was informed that I'd just come into a large sum of money, I would be instantly quite happy, wouldn't you? You'd be curious, you'd wonder why. Did I buy a lottery ticket? I don't remember. Or whatever, you know. 
Uh, someone died and left me a load of money. But I think, you, on balance, you'd probably be quite pleased. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. There was a popular song in the last century. That's coming up to a quarter of a century ago now. That's the last century. Money is the root of all evil. Anybody, anybody know of it? Money is the root of all evil. Money is the Yeah? Well, it is wrong. It's wrong. It's not, money is not the root of all evil. The Bible tells us very clearly, the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, who likes money? Oh, now this is tricky, isn't it? So if the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, and I love money, mm, well, do I love money? What does it mean? It's not actually saying... Um, to appreciate money, to have a, a, a warm feeling when you get money is wrong or evil. It's talking about where's our focus. If, if your focus, if your whole life is centered about the pursuit of wealth and that draws you away from God, that is the root of evil. That's the tool of the devil, if you like. Where your heart is, is where your soul goes. So the Bible clearly tells us that money is not bad. In fact, it encourages, encourages us to look after our money. Those parables, the, the particular one about the good steward and the bad steward, you know that one? The stewards, the, they, were, they were given a sum of money by their master and they were told to, to look after it while he was away. One of them because he was a bit scared of the master, went out, found a secret place and buried it in the ground. <clears throat> the other one went and invested it. And when the master came back, the one who invested it and returned a higher figure than he had given in the first place was commended. But the one who buried it in the ground and just gave the master back exactly what he would given him in the first place got a right telling off. That was not good. I heard of someone recently who had saved up £9,000 and had hidden it in the back of their wardrobe. Where, of course, no one would ever think of looking for it. Now, if that money, instead of being hidden in the back of the wardrobe, had been put into a bank account at today's interest rates, and we all know that interest rates have been going up, so you're getting a bit more for your money now, but £9,000 hidden, or put into the bank rather, over 12 months would raise about £500 in interest. How logical is it to stuff money in your mattress, as it were? It's true to say this is all very well, but how many of us can actually afford to save anything? I mean, I don't know anybody's individual circumstances, but there are surely people in, in our presence this morning who are struggling with money. There are some who have plenty of money. There are some in the middle, as it were. It's true to say, and it's all very well, that we can save, but if we haven't got the money in the first place, how do we get by? Does the Bible offer any comfort in that situation? Well, in um, there is a verse... And I've put it down as verse 24, and I've managed not to write down what chapter it is. I think it's Matthew. 
No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Did I get that? No, that's another one. We'll come to that in a minute. Yeah. Let me go back to that again. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve both God and money. How specific is that? If you read the first part of that verse, you, you, you come to that conclusion. You can't serve two masters. Some of you have to have two jobs. Yes, for financial reasons. And you're trying to serve two masters. And you probably find difficulty sometimes. Um, if you're in a, in a job where you have two supervisors and they keep giving you contradictory information or instructions, that's tricky as well. But Jesus immediately turns that towards money. You cannot serve both God and money. Put God first. It reinforces that point. You cannot love God and money if you don't put God first. In verse 25 onwards it says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? He goes on, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. I've just read that. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you be worrying? Add a single hour to your life. He goes on, very specific. This is Jesus talking. Yeah? It's not some philosopher. This is Jesus himself. Why do you worry about clothes? Don't we all? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And he goes on. I think I've got that, yes. Someone got there yet? Well, this is the theory, if you like. This is what the Bible tells us. And we're all Bible believers, are we? Yeah? How about that verse that says, Sell all you have and give to the poor? I haven't, I haven't done that. Anybody done that? Don't tell us. If you tell us, you lose all your glory. But the question is, does it work? Does it work? Does God look after us if we trust him? Because that's the fundamental thing. We need to trust God. Put God first, and then this follows. But does it mean that we'll be protected from all difficulties? Sorry, no. Well, let me tell you a bit about my life experience before and included my married life with Sue. Most of you know my wife is Sue. <clears throat> let me go back before I met Sue. In October 1977, I was single. I was a lot lighter. That, that's irrelevant. Um, I was single and I was earning 
about £200 a month after tax. I know this because I kept my little cash books that I used to keep. My salary was £200 a month. This is 1977. 50, 56 years ago. I had taken on a mortgage of about £6,000 to buy a one-bedroom flat in Walthamstow. On top of that, I was paying back the deposit that I had to borrow because I was so ignorant, if you would like the word, um, that I didn't realize I had to have a deposit when I entered into the mortgage. And then one day somebody wrote me a letter and said, can you please send your £600? I had to borrow it. So I had to pay that back to my employers. The bank base rate at that time was about 5.5%. Oh, that's what it is now, today, these days, about five and a half, isn't it? 5.25, isn't it? And this was in October 1977. By the time I paid the mortgage and I paid the insurance and the council tax or rates as it was then, roughly half my £200 a month went on the mortgage. Then I had to get to work and all the rest of it. And to cut a long story short, I was left with about £40 a month to pay for everything else. £40 a month, 50 years ago. So I had to do something to raise, to get more income. Uh, something had to be done. So what I did was I went out and I found Sue, who was working. I made sure she was working. And I married her. <laughs> so, two incomes, problem solved. <laughs> now, I, I just said that the interest rates at the beginning of that year when I took out the mortgage were 5.5%. By the end of 1978, just a year later, interest rates went up to 12.5%. That's more than double. Oh dear. Today, if you go out, it's 5.5%. Where is it going to be next year? This, this is relevant to the way we should be thinking. And throughout that year, our mortgage went up 24% in just six months. Throughout 1979, it rose, and at the end of it, it got to 17%. Can you imagine today? Dare I ask, who has a mortgage? Would you mind putting your hand up if you have a mortgage? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. How would you feel if the interest rate went up to 17%? You'd be handing the keys back, probably. Well, let me tell you this. It was the, it was the Conservative government in power at the time, a lady called Margaret Thatcher, and she had a Chancellor of the Exchequer called Geoffrey Howe, and one night on the news they announced interest rates have been increased to 30%. I'm not making this up, 30%, and everybody with a mortgage went, I give up. The next day, came on the news, you cut it back to 17. I think that's what they call panic. 
But it's a little lesson there that interest rates can go up or down, of course. Now, time was passing and I was working. I'd finished um, a period when I was training and so on. And eventually I got a proper job, as it were, with the same company. And during the next two or three years, my salary almost doubled. So that was, that was great. That was helping to balance out this, all this stuff. Over the next few years, Sue and I did quite well, even, you know, even though property prices in London were rising all the time. We moved up the property ladder to a three-bedroomed house, and we were fostering children by this time. Now, although fostering, uh, fostering parents at the time, we can both remember, they, they complained a lot. They were saying that the money you were given for fostering wasn't really adequate, and that's still true today, I think. But we felt, to be honest, um, that they were quite reasonable. And... Um, we were, um, with these promotions at work and so on, I was able to save substantially each month. The fact that the kids were coming to us and asking for more, and we were saying more, um, had nothing to do with it. We were feeding them, honestly. But I remember thinking at the time about the story of Joseph in Egypt. Do we, do we all know that story? There's Joseph, you know, he'd, he'd, been, he'd emigrated to Egypt, well, he'd been kidnapped and sold. And he got to Egypt and he was flung into prison for a story I needn't go into. And while he was there, he was able to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. And the Pharaoh then appointed him as head of, of resources, as it were. And they were having seven years then of bountiful harvests. And Joseph was put in charge of this and he was saving up the grain, buying up all the spare grain and storing it up. You can read this in... I think it's Genesis. And at the end of the seven years, the, the harvest started to fail and everything was going pear-shaped, but they had all these resources saved up. Now, there's a basic lesson there you know, we, we can all get hold of, can't we? If you're in a position where you have a surplus each month, you have a choice. You can take that surplus and you can go and spend it, or you can save it up, or a bit of both. See... A lot of this is common sense, isn't it, when you look at it objectively? Do you agree? Common sense? How common is common sense? I once, uh, a lady once came to us when, we, when I was in the last church, and she said, oh, she said, oh, I don't know what it is, she said, but ever since I bought this, my SUV, I've had no money to spare. And I thought, yeah. Well, we were doing well, and my career continued to develop. Um, by 1990, I'd been made a company, sec uh, company director. I had a company car, I had a car phone, I had an expense account, I had a department I was running with a turnover of about four million, and I travelled on business in Europe, Far East. My salary then was 23,000 um, a year, not a, not a month. Um, <laughs> At today's money, I did a quick calculation. Apparently, that would have been about 60,000 a year today. So, I was doing all right, wasn't I? Fabulous. I was happy. I think Sue was happy. Were you happy? Yeah. <laughs> and by then, we had three children. Throughout all this, we were actively in our church. We were supporting our church. We were present at meetings and so on. I was a deacon. Um, Sue was involved in nursery and so on. And we were faithfully supporting the church with tithes and offerings and so on. We were doing our best to put God first. That's the simple point I'm trying to make there. 
1991 came along. The managing director of our company was 90 years old. And guess what? He decided to retire. He, about, about June, he said he was going. So we had an office farewell party. And towards the end of the party, as the people started to drift away, the new CEO asked me to join him in his office. Now, I'd been rising up through the ranks, and I was doing all right, as I mentioned. And so um, he, I sat down in his office, and I was expecting him to say, now that Mr. Palmer is, is gone, um, we're going to do new strategies, and there's going to be new opportunities, and so on. So he looked at me across his desk, and he said, I want you to resign and leave the company. Just like that, out of the blue. Total shock. I was actually being replaced by my new assistant that I'd had for three months, who had come from the CEO's previous company. He brought him in as my assistant and then gave him my job. I never saw that coming. I never saw it coming. But um, do you know what? Two or three weeks later, a close friend of, of us of ours, um, came into the office, um, well, not didn't come into the office, just gave me a slip of paper. I didn't have an office, I'd been fired. <laughs> and just gave me the, the, the verse, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and I think most of you will be familiar with it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And we were very grateful for that. But that, that verse applies to everybody, you know. If you put your trust in God, that applies to you as well. Did you know that? It applies to everybody who puts their trust in God and puts God first. But when someone has been prompted by the Lord to give you that verse, it's a reminder, isn't it? We held on to that. I was a bit confused, though, because I thought, well, I had a future. I had, I had plans. I had a cracking good job. But we continued to trust the Lord. Well, I had this idea. I thought this is the time I should put into, into sort of practice or, or start the process of um, moving on into a new career. I had had this conviction since I was about, well, since I got saved really, that one day I'd be a pastor. So I thought it was only a matter of time before that would happen. So I went to my pastor and I said, um, I'm ready now. Sue and I are ready. We had talked about it. We are ready to sell up and go off to Bible College, um, train uh, at the AOG Bible College and go into the ministry. What do you think? And he looked at me and he said, no, I don't think so. Oh, I never saw that coming. The plans of men not the plans of God, always. But a week or two later, a former colleague who had left the company before me, the, the company I'd been working for, he'd set up his own company, and he, he rang me up and he said, I've heard you've left uh, Plouts, as it was called, and how about coming to work with me? Fabulous. Doing the same thing as before? Great. Not quite as much money, but, you know, good. So, that's okay. What could possibly go wrong? Then something unexpected and 
quite unplanned happened. And I'm going to let Sue tell you a bit more about that. I think it's Rachel. Um, as Gary said, that he started working from home, so that meant we had his desk in the bay window of our bedroom. So it was the only space we had in the house. But shortly after that, I realised I was pregnant. And just like before when I was pregnant, I became very sick and nauseous. And, uh, and this time, it was worse, and I ended up in bed. So Gary was at the office doing his um, telephone calls, and I was lying in bed. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't eat anything, and I lost weight. And uh, my midwife said to me, she said, oh, when you go for your first scan, she said, it might be twins. I said, oh, but I didn't really take much notice of that. Um, but when we had the scan, it showed we were expecting triplets. <laughs> and I think we both laughed like somebody just did then. <laughs> it was hysteria. Uh, yeah, hysteria, yeah. Um, I was out of action for about eight weeks because I couldn't do anything. I, I got better once I got to 13 weeks. But Gary was at home. He was able to take the children to school and uh, do everything else that I couldn't. So even in that, God had his hand upon us, I believe. Thank you. Well, time moved on. March 1992 was coming and it was clear that my new job wasn't going very well. I wasn't actually selling enough doors. That was what I was doing. So, this time I wasn't fired. I was made redundant. And it was agreed that I would uh, finish working on the 31st of March, 1992. And four days later, three babies arrived. So we then had, by this time, six children. We still had a mortgage and no job. One of the babies is Corrie, who some of you know. This time, the phone didn't ring. No job, so I signed on the dole and spent the next, what was to be, 18 months changing nappies, making up 18 bottles of milk a day and generally getting by. Now, the story moves on. Are we okay for time? Or shall I get on with it? There we are. I mean, one of the questions we asked ourselves was, how are we going to cope with six children and with all that's going on? But God provided for us in so many ways. It wasn't just financial. Um, at the school, once word got around that I was expecting triplets, I, mum was coming up to me saying, you can borrow my carry cot, you can have my bouncy chair, you can have my high chair. So I ended up with, or we ended up with six carry cots because we wanted to have three downstairs and three upstairs, so it was easier. Uh, three bouncy chairs, three high chairs, three car seats, baby clothes so much that we had to build a big cupboard downstairs in our dining room to house it. Um, two sterilizers. So, you know, I didn't even have to think about it. God just prompted different people to, to help me. 
Um, and also then to survive the night feeds, uh, my mum and dad were brilliant. They um, came and did one night a week so that we could have one night's sleep. Um, and also another lady in our church had had triplets 30 years before. So she came and did one night now and then, so again that we had some sleep. Um, there was one occasion, um, I was running short of some baby clothes, they were growing, and I'm thinking, oh dear, I'm going to run out. And then the health centre rang me, and uh, she said, oh, I've got a bag of baby clothes here for you, would you like them? So I said, oh yeah, okay. And I went and picked it up, and it was exactly what I needed. It was exactly what I was running out of. Um, we also had family and neighbours that helped after our two youngest girls because they were only four and five. So, you know, having three babies with them, I mean, they were very good with them. But we had brilliant neighbours and my mum and dad used to take them out and give them treats and we, we couldn't. We had people that helped us with the school run, do our shopping and paid for one lot of nappies even. So God provided in many, many ways. Now, God said that he will bless us above and beyond all that we can think of. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, and to him be glory in the church of Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. The major ver words are do exceedingly abundantly above what we ask or think. How big is our vision? You know, if you're in that situation, basically, you're, you're, you're grateful you, um, for anything you can get, and you look for the basics, don't you? Well, at that time, the government paid the interest on your mortgage. They don't do it now, I believe. And we had what we called an endowment mortgage, which you may be, some of you may know. An endowment is interest only. You pay the interest, and the capital stays there, but the... Uh, thing is supposed to grow and grow and so by the end of the mortgage term you get your mortgage paid off and you're supposed to get a fat lump of money as, as a sort of the interest as it were. Well, because we had an endowment mortgage, the government paid it all. No worries. We're not going to lose our house. Fabulous. Well, as time went on and the interest rates had peaked and now they were coming down again. The um, one day I noticed that the, uh, what, what happened was the government paid the interest directly to the building society. And I noticed, because I like to keep track of these things, that they were paying too much. Because the interest rates had gone down and they should have reduced the amount. So I wrote them a letter. Still got the letter at home. It's a bit pompous the way I wrote it. But anyway, I wrote this letter and it said basically the interest rates have gone down, you should lower it. And they replied... We are very sorry, we have no mechanism for reducing your um, interest payments and therefore you have to keep the, the money. So by the end of this period of unemployment, which I said before lasted 18 months, our mortgage actually went down a bit and the government paid for that. Thank you very much. But it refers back to that thing about the seven... Um, you know, the, the, the seven lean years and the seven fat years. God works around this. Um, one of the significant points, though, and it's if you're looking for advice this morning at all, is um, minimize your debts. Because if we had had 
debts when I was made unemployed, apart from the mortgage covered by the government, if I'd had an outstanding HP, as we called it in those days, higher purchase, um, on furniture and a, and a flash car or something, where would the money have come from? The point is, sensible people minimize their debts. Most of us have to have a mortgage at some time or other. That's something you cannot avoid, if you, unless you rent, of course. But um, the sensible thing, the wise thing, to be a good steward is not to pile up huge debts, ever. Trusting where you are. The other thing is not to max out your mortgage. Because if interest rates go up, as they will, where do you find the money? And you're hearing stories like this recently, with the interest rates going up recently, how many horror stories have there been about people can't pay their mortgage? Very tricky. But Matthew 6 says, your heavenly Father knows what you need, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Wow! It's good, isn't it? Trust in the Lord. I was out of work for 18 months, and during that period, um, towards towards the end of it, I suppose, the last six months or so, I started to volunteer in a local Christian bookshop. And um, to be honest, it was an excuse to stop changing nappies for a few hours a day. But one day the owner said, well, you know, you volunteer. I, I know I can't pay you because if I did, it would affect your dole and all that. So um, I've booked you into Pontins for a few days. Go off and have a little holiday. Blessed it above, above, was it above abundantly above all that we can ask or think of. The point of all this is that being a Christian does not protect you from unjust or unfair treatment at work. It doesn't guarantee that you'll be successful at work, but it does guarantee that Jesus will be with you as you walk through these valleys of life. The 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I was thinking last week as Barry was sharing with us, you know, talking about um, the valleys and the, the dark valleys and all the rest of it, which the figurative language. It's just a fact, though, you know, that we cannot live on the mountain tops all the time. If you go to most mountain tops, you don't find people living there. We all live in valleys. Not all valleys are steep-sided and dark and dismal. We live in a valley in Harlow. Did you realize? There's a river at the bottom of the valley, and it slopes down. We live in a gentle-sided valley, if you like. But Jesus promises to walk with us through the valleys of life, where from birth... We live in this shadow of death because we all are born to die. None of us are going to live on this earth forever. But if we put God first, we have, oh, eternal life. How about that? Yeah? For God will give us the strength we need each day and guidance as we need it all the time. Is there any condition to this? Again, in Proverbs 3, verse 6, the Bible says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Look to him, trust him, allow him. 
even give him permission. I once prayed to the Lord, Lord, I'm not terribly confident that I'm always going to make good decisions in my life. I give you permission to overrule me now and again. Sounds a bit naive, doesn't it? I, I was quite young then. I was only about 40 or oh, something. But I think, God, I think God took that. I think, I think my heart was in the right place. I wanted him to take control of my life. We say these things, but do we, do we actually grasp them? Trust him. Allow him. Give him permission to take over your life. And he will direct your path. If you don't have this assurance, you might be sitting here this morning and think, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have this assurance. I don't know about this. If you don't have this assurance, please talk to me afterwards or talk to John or Dave, Barry, Malcolm, any of the elders. Put God first and he will direct your paths. Praise God for his goodness all the time. I'm quite fascinated to know what other verses I put up. That was it. Good. Amen.